We just want to make a quick announcement before we start this episode. So, we recorded most of the audio for this episode prior to the murder of George Floyd, and we briefly mentioned the start of chattel slavery as a consequence of the cultivation of certain C4 plants. We debated whether or not to make a broader statement condemning slavery, but we wanted to try to remain a science-focused podcast without trying to make any political stands. Due to the civil unrest going on globally, we decided that staying silent would make us complicit, so we want to state unequivocally that we stand in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. We also condemn any type of discrimination based off race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. Just because there are injustices in the past does not mean we can turn a blind eye towards them now and allow them to continue to echo during our times. Welcome to Wolves and Wheat Podcast. This is Volume 1, Supplemental 1, Biology and History of C4 Plants. So in the previous episode, we ended with uh, the promise that we, we will make two supplemental episodes that cover topics that are not directly related to the main theme. But we we thought it would be interesting to explore them anyway. And the first one is C4 photosynthesis. So in order to get a better understanding of what this is, I think first we should do a general introduction into the most common form of carbon fixation, which is the so-called C3 photosynthesis. And uh, if we explore that, then we can go into the differences between the two of them. Uh, so what should we know about the basics of uh, carbon fixation? Yeah, so first before I, I kind of get into the basics of it, I want to define a few terms first of all. And the first term is a substrate, and a substrate binds with an enzyme's active site, and this catalyzes the reaction of the metabolic pathway, such as photosynthesis, and more than one molecule can activate these substrates. And then the second uh, definition is enzyme, and an enzyme is a protein that acts as a catalyst, and a catalyst is something that reduces the amount of energy needed for a reaction to take place. So these are very helpful in in lowering reaction energy and making reactions a bit more uh, energy efficient. So now I want to get into a bit, like you said, overview of C3 photosynthesis, because yeah, you can't really compare two things without knowing what they both are. So I want to talk about the carbon fixation step of photosynthesis. And this is when carbon is acquired when RUBP, which is the substrate that reacts with CO2, it's catalyzed by an enzyme called Rubisco through carboxylation. And carboxylation is when a a carbon group is added to another molecule. So when RUBP reacts with CO2, it forms PGA. And PGA is an intermediate compound that is then turned to G3P, which is the precursor to many sugars such as glucose and sucrose, which are the main sources of energy for plants. Yeah, so uh, without all the names of these compounds, what basically happens is uh, you take a molecule with five carbon atoms and you add uh, a CO2, so one singular carbon atom, and turn it into an intermediate molecule that has six carbon atoms. And it kind of falls or splits into two molecules that each contain three carbon atoms. And uh, the name Rubisco is actually an abbreviation, uh, and the last two letters imply that it have it has a dual function. So it uh, the C and O part in Rubisco uh, are short for carboxylase oxygenase, 
So that implies that the enzyme has a secondary function, oxygenation. Uh, can you describe what this secondary function is and what are its implications? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was a good overview to summarize. And yeah, exactly. So Rubisco has two different functions. Like I said before, enzymes combine to, can bind to two different molecules. So uh, Rubisco also catalyzes a second reaction of oxygenation, as, as you implied, of RUBP, which produces phosphoglycolate, which is an inhibitor of certain uh, enzyme activity that are involved in, in carbon fixation. And this is a problem because oxygenation is a wasteful uh, step from the plant's perspective, since Rubisco uses the active sites that would other be used for carboxylation. And oxygen oxygenation also consumes the uh, RUBP and the recovery of the carbon atom in this phosphoglycolate consumes ATP or energy and releases previously fixed CO2. So basically what this means is instead of being able to do another round of carboxylation and, and produce sugars, the plant is instead going through a process in which they have to acquire or in which they require more energy to break up the, the intermediate compound that's actually detrimental to photosynthesis. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it also releases CO2 that was already fixed. So you're working backwards on, on the process that you already did through carboxylation. But this may have been an inevitable reaction due to the similarities in the reaction sequence of oxygenation and, and carboxylation of RUBP. And so it might seem like this oxygenation is like a design flaw um, in, in plants that decreases the ability of herbisco performance under a specific set of conditions. And when the earth first was forming, these conditions weren't there. But if, if these specific conditions arose and they were persistent enough, then they would be enough to um, necess necessitate an alternative photosynthetic pathway evolving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as you mentioned, uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen levels were very different uh, when photosynthesis evolved. So the first pho photosynthetic organisms evolved around 3 billion years ago in an aquatic environment uh, with uh, high atmospheric CO2 levels and virtually no uh, oxygen levels. And they used CO2 in, in a water-soluble form, so uh, in a form of uh, bicarbonate or hydrocarbonate ions. And the first plants that actually started to use the atmospheric CO2, so the first terrestrial plants, only evolved around 450 million years ago. By, the time, uh, by that time, oxygen levels were already present in the atmosphere, but uh, a lot lower than currently. And uh, so during that time, uh, the atmospheric CO2 levels were still high enough to, to saturate uh, Rubisco and minimize the oxygenase activity. Uh, but this, this dynamic was very slowly but gradually changing. Uh, when did the oxygen levels rise to a certain threshold when it actually started to impact uh, the photosynthetic capacity of Rubisco massively? So about 50 million years ago or so was when the O2 levels rose to this, um, not necessarily critical threshold, but they rose to a point where um, CO2 intake had to become more efficient 
or else if, if the change in the environment persisted, then photosynthesis would become less and less effective. And this was, like you said, kind of a gradual thing. O2 levels didn't just change overnight, but they're rising due to photosynthetic byproducts and also the planetary effects that we discussed in the, in the first episode. So these things all like played a hand in the changing atmospheric concentrations, which created more evolutionary pressure, pressures to necessitate uh, a need for more efficient CO2 intake. Mm-hmm. So, so imagine that uh, plants started to to feel this, so to say. So uh, it started to affect plants around 50 million years ago. But when uh, when did, did it reach like a critical threshold where uh, it uh, significantly changed the efficiency of photosynthesis? So this critical threshold of O2 levels in the atmosphere didn't really arise till about the last 15 million years or so ago. And this is when the O2 levels reached such a point where the rubisco oxygenase activity increased by more than 20% of carboxylation activity at 30 degrees Celsius. So what this means is that for every eight cycles of carboxylation, there are two cycles of oxygenation. And then oxygenation eventually surpassed 40% of carboxylase activity. So for every six cycles of carboxylation, there were four cycles of oxygenation. And this was occurring during the late Pleistocene, which also coincided with the end of the last ice age, as we mentioned in the first episode. So it was around this time where the CO2 concentrations were low enough for the rate of of rubisco oxygenation to exceed 30% of carboxylation, which is seven cycles of carboxylation and 30 cycles of oxygenation. And it was around this time when C4 plants appeared in the fossil record. So, like I said, around the, the end of the last ice age in the late Pleistocene. And what C4 photosynthesis means is basically that the primary product of carbon fixation is a molecule with four carbon atoms instead of one with three carbon atoms at, that are seen in uh, C3 photosynthesis. It's interesting that you mentioned the photosynthetic efficiency of Rubisco. And just to put it into perspective, uh, currently, so in our modern day and age in 2020, uh, the ratio of carboxylation to oxygenation in C3 plants is around 3 to 1, or like 75% and 25%. So if we compare that to, to the levels that were present during the Pleistocene, which is like 70-30 or even 60-40, then it's clear that the efficiency of the enzyme at the time was, let's say, god-awful. And uh, this provided sufficient evolutionary pressure or population pressure uh, on, on plant populations to, to evolve some sort of new, uh, more efficient carbon-fixing system. Um, but can you explain what were the steps that were necessary uh, for the plants to evolve such new systems? So, yeah, in order to overcome the dilemma of Rubisco and its oxygenation activity, which led to, as you put it, a god-awful uh, carbon fixation efficiency during the slate Pleistocene, in terrestrial environments, there are pretty much two primary requirements that had to be met. And this first requirement is that Rubisco is localized within a diffusion barrier that regulates the diffusion of CO2. So this means that if the concentration inside this area of CO2 gets to a certain point, it won't 
start to diffuse out to the less concentrated area. So that was the first most important thing. Because without this, any attempts to sequester the CO2 would lead to this escape due to the difference in the concentration levels. And these, um, this was called uh, bundle sheets, and, and these, these are the areas in which Rubisco first started to be localized. So then the second requirement is now that you have Rubisco localized and you have it in an area with a diffusion barrier, so you don't have to worry about the loss of CO2, the next step is to develop a transport system to bring the CO2 into these bundle sheets where you've now localized Rubisco. So uh, this, this sounds like a brand new system where you concentrate the photosynthetic cells in these tiny closed off areas and you also evolve a new system that helps to basically pump all the CO2 into that location. So do, uh, does this system evolve completely, uh, was this like a completely novel secondary system or was it built on top of like pre-existing uh, structures or pathways that the plants already had? Well, to answer that, I guess we should probably take a small step back and mention that some C3 terrestrial plants actually created a system that reduced their amount of, of CO2 loss through photorespiration. And so some of these species were the ones that were the progenitors of C4 plants. And that suggests that this is a possible intermediate step from terrestrial C3 plants to C4 plants. So what this suggests is that plants didn't exactly create a whole new system from scratch with a new substrate, new enzymes, and all that stuff. Instead, what happened was they modified their expression of the existing enzymes to enhance them and, and make them serve other functions. And then other enzymes like Rubisco had to change their spatial pattern of enzyme expression. What, what that means is now they're in these bundle sheets and they're localized so that they don't come in, into contact with uh, oxygen as much. So these modifications, like I said, were first undertaken as small st stepping blocks for C in C3 plants. But then at a certain point, these modifications led to this full-blown C4 synth synthetic pathway, which was more efficient in carbon fixation because, like I said, it was kept away from oxygen to reduce the oxygenase activity. So these changes made the plants more efficient in fixing CO2, which is a huge advantage in and of itself. And how do C4 plants compare to C3 plants in, in other aspects? Yeah, so exactly. That's a good question, because in, in certain areas, when C4 plants began to arise, they dominated landscapes in, in a relatively short amount of time, in times where there was only C3 plants there to begin with. But again, I want to stress in certain certain areas, because C4 photosynthesis allowed plants to have a higher assimilation of carbon dioxide in full sunlight with temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius than C3 plants. So this means in, in tropical and subtropical areas, and I'll get to the importance of that um, in a bit, bit later. And the C4 plants also utilize nutrients like nitrogen, the solar radiation, and water better than C3 plants. And they also have faster growing time than C3 plants. So that mixed with the more efficient water use and the, um, and the efficient, more efficient water use gives them higher drought tolerance. This means that C4 plants could be grown with less water than, than C3 plants. And there's also in more uh, modern terms here, we have uh, a, a study that shows that seasonal crop grape growths 
and these are obtained by plotting the annual year uh, annual yields compared to the time it takes to grow. Um, so if you if you look at these rates, then C4 plants have twice as high a growth rate as C3 plants with these parameters. I see. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, crop growth rates, uh, all of these factors, uh, the better use of resources, better resiliency towards uh, uh, heat stress and droughts, uh, these made uh, certain C4 plants good candidates for domestication. And how did these plants interact with, uh, I'd say, human evolution and the emergence of civilizations in general? So that's a really interesting question, and it actually goes farther than just the effects this had on, on human evolution or domestication in, in human civilizations, but also directly human evolution. And like I said before, this change really started to happen with C4 grasses dominating landscapes around these tropical and subtropic regions um, with, with temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius. And why that's so important is because these are the same areas humans evolved in, in southern and eastern Africa. So the shift from these C3 woodlands to C4 grasslands during this last ice age that we keep talking about, that we uh, went over extensively in the first episode, had a very huge impact on our ancient ancestors. Because these C4 woodlands provided cover, and not only that, but they also provided them with a varied diet with abundance of edible C3 plants. And these new C4 grasslands no longer provided this cover from predators and other, and other environmental aspects, and um, they also had very little to no nutritional value, which is why steps had to be taken to domesticate these plants. Uh, because the roots and tubers of these species weren't edible at all by humans, and the seeds were too small and shattered very easily, so gathering them was pretty much impossible. And that, that just shows how important the loss of shattering is to domestication and, and the emergence of human uh, civilization. So, as a result, humans had to shift their diet towards eating herbivores during this period, um, during the, the end of this uh, last ice age, because these herbivores evolved to be able to eat the C4 plants and process the, the energy from them. So, humans had to shift their diet, and they also had to be more alert for predators, because they're now living in more wide-open spaces. So, uh, considering that we're still actively using C4 plants in many aspects of, of uh, life, I think it's uh, interesting to explore the more recent effects of C4 plants on modern humans. Uh, what have been the more lasting effects that we, we still see today? Yeah, exactly. So C4 plants not only contributed to a lot of things in terms of human evolutionary history, but they've also had a huge impact in terms of modern human history. Because C4 plants are major contributors of food production for modern humans, not only in industrialized, but also in developing nations. And the success and expansion of major civilizations was made possible through the exploitation of C4 plants. So before European invasion of the Americas, maize was the main component that allowed for the rise of these early Mesoamerican city-states and empires. So without the fast-growing time of C4 plants and, and their abundance and resistance to drought and their ability to grow and dominate landscapes, we probably wouldn't have had these huge civilizations as soon as we did, nor would they have gotten as big as they did without C4 plants. So not only do C4 crops affect the, the diet of the modern humans, and not only does it give us our ability um, for population expansion, 
it also has a huge impact on society and, and large-reaching social impacts as well. One example of this was the rise of sugarcane in the Caribbean islands in the 1600s, which provided Europe with a relatively cheap sugar. And not only did this alter the diet of the humans, but it also altered their social customs and the economies of Western Europe. And also that obviously had an impact around the globe. Yeah, and obviously it also heavily affected the regions where these plantations were established. Yeah, it had a huge impact on these regions that we can still see today and that these areas still struggle with today. And most of the information from this episode was gotten from the book C4 Plant Biology by Rowan F. Sage. And if you're interested in the topic that we discussed in this episode, then I highly recommend checking this book out because it is a very engaging read about all the stuff we talked about and goes into way more detail. But the reason I bring that up is because he had this quote, to grow the cane, large numbers of Africans were kidnapped and sold into slavery in the Caribbean, contributing in large part to the social matrix characteristic of the region today. The reason why I bring up this quote is because while yes, C4 plants have helped human civilizations grow, and has helped with our population growth and a lot of the progress we've seen in humanity. It has also brought about some of the darkest parts of humanity. And these are things that we also cannot ignore when we are evaluating the history of domestication and civilization. Yes, I think it's very important to, to address the downsides as we uh, explore the, when some of these fundamental changes have occurred. So uh, as we will see in, up, in upcoming episodes, uh, the adoption of new techniques, uh, new production systems, often completely uprooted, pun intended, the lives of, uh, of uh, humans in a society. And I think the upcoming episodes on the Fertile Crescent will show that very clearly.